Hello and welcome to another edition of Be There with Dali Loudspeakers, the podcast that celebrates the minds behind the music. This series ties in with Dali's own music magazine, also called Be There, and it's edited by me, Andrew Harrison. Be There magazine looks at the talent behind great records, old and new, and you can get a free copy from the Dali Facebook page, facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers. You can also find out about how Dali build the finest loudspeakers available, created for amazingly detailed sound and transparency, and with all the hallmarks of fine Danish design all for the admiration of music. We've got two past guests returning to talk about matters featuring in and related to Be There magazine, and they're also going to nominate the five greatest seconds in all of pop music from their personal preferences. We're going to add those records to our ever-expanding Tidal playlist, which you can find on the Dali Facebook page. So let's reacquaint ourselves with our guests. David Hepworth is a legend of British music media, the co-founder of Q and Mojo magazines, co-presenter of the BBC's Whistle Test, and famously, the man who had to keep a straight face when Bob Geldof swore at the entire world during Live Aid. He's now an acclaimed author of rock and roll history firstly of never a dull moment 1971 rock's golden year and now uncommon people the rise and fall of the rock stars in the current issue of be there he names the greatest side men and session musicians of all time and you can hear him talk about that on one of our other episodes which you can find on our audio boom page hello david thanks for coming back how are you doing and nice to be here i'm very well this uh, this podcast is certainly for the nicest speakers I've ever used. Is it the dirty secrets of rock journalists that we tend to use bad speakers? <laughs> and we have, we cast our lofty opinions from from a cheapo little box. That I, we have in the corner. I, I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. You know, <laughs> I, I have to tell you, years ago, I was once uh, put in a CBS studio to to review a Bruce Springsteen record from the master tape. Wow! And I was on my own in this in this place with a console in in front of me, and uh, I thought it doesn't sound right. And so mm. I leaned over the console and I finally sounded a little, sort of a little switch that went stereo. <laughs> and I clicked it. Woof! Well, you do wonder what... I mean, a certain, a certain rock journalist of, uh, I've worked with for a long time, who shall remain nameless, uh, reviewed a Prince album uh, talking about Prince's exciting new direction, really abrasive, really taken on a lot of hip-hop and an awful lot of urban sounds, a very new sound for Prince, and then discovered that the cassette he'd been reviewing actually was a public enemy cassette. <laughs> and, and he'd gone away, oh, Prince this new sound is that will absolutely blow your mind. It would give bands nightmares if they could see the things that we uh, review music on. Uh, but then again, the money was never that great in the reviewing business, was it? No, no. Um, Q Magazine, which you started with Mark Ellen, was an enormous success on the back of the CD revolution in the 80s uh, when it had never sounded better and it will never get scratched with the, uh, with, with the mantras. This was the kind of the last imperial period of the album, wasn't it? Do you think that lo-fi streams and kind of downloads and the general downgrading of sound quality has contributed to maybe the dethroning of the album? I think, well, I'm, I'm actually working on a book at the moment, which is about the age of the LP, which I think is slightly different from the age of the album. Yes, actually. it is. Uh, and, and what I found when in looking at that age which is from the late 60s and, and until the early 80s. I think the thing that, that, that worked in the album's favour, the LP's favour, was, was the ceremony. Of playing a record, you know, that you cleared time to play a record mm -hmm. and you sat down and you listened in your front room to yes. a record. Mm -hmm. Whereas since the, you know, the advent of first the first the Walkman and then the, you know, all sorts of personal stereos and so forth, so much listening is done on the move. While doing something else. While yeah. doing something else, while distracted. Whereas, you know, the, the, the traditional LP experience was, was quite concentrated. I also thought the most important thing about the LP experience was there's a bit in the middle where you've got to get up and turn it Absolutely. over. Absolutely. That's what stops you wandering off. That's what anchors your attention. Yeah, I think that's really true. You couldn't leave it. It's like a, a, a toddler. You don't leave a toddler <laughs> in a room. You know what I mean? Because 
it will come to grief. You know, you didn't walk away from an LP. Am I right? Am I remembering this correctly? When you were kind of superintending Smash Hits magazine, the great British pop magazine, um, that albums were never to be referred to as albums. They were to be referred to as LPs <laughs> because albums were pretentious and arty and, and, and no fun. And LPs Poss- were for the people. Possibly. Although, actually, I think probably, and again, on this book I'm working on at the moment, as it brought me face to face with this. If I look at the golden age of, of Smash Hits, it was actually the cassette. Ah. It was probably the main music carrier during that period. Mm-hmm. And people were recording singles off the radio and yeah. so forth and borrowing each other's albums and making their own mixes and so forth. I think it's highly unlikely that users of Dali Halad speakers will ever fall back in love with the cassettes. I think it's highly unlikely. It's difficult to love. It is very difficult to love. Also returning to the show is Joel McIver, the most prolific writer of rock biographies around, with many books including Justice for All, The Truth About Metallica, under his belt. Joel writes for Metal Hammer, Classic Rock and Rolling Stone, among many others. He co-authored Spider from Mars, My Life with David Bowie, with Woody Woodmansey. And in the current issue of Be There magazine, he profiles the great John Leckie, who has engineered and produced everyone from Pink Floyd to The Fall to The Stone Roses to Radiohead. Hello, Joel. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me back. Have, how have you been? Oh, very well. I'm having such a heavy metal day. I'm not sweating. I'm rusting. <laughs> You're rusting. <laughs> so as a metal guy, uh, the world of metal loves its high-end reproduction, doesn't it? The, 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 you know, if you are a lover of, of loud and uh, you know, demonstrative music, it requires that kind of high level of reproduction. Um, it really does. And that's partly to do with the nature of the music. There tends to be um, a lot of bass in uh, a lot of extreme metal. If you want to go straight to the the sort of the most extreme grisly end of the stuff where we talk about death metal the stuff is basically bass and low mids there aren't too many high mids um so what you need is a speaker system capable of doing that but at the same time you might go to the other end of the heavy metal spectrum and listen to poison or rat or guns and roses who are all about those nice trebly bits uh, so yeah decent speakers are a requisite i think i've also i mean not being a metal person myself i've always suspected that, shame on you <laughs> shame on me i've always suspected that metal is basically orchestral because it's people who'd love to have an orchestra but can't quite afford one yet very grandiose I, I see where you're going with that, but my theory about why so many heavy metal bands team up with symphony orchestras is just to show off. Well, that's what I'm saying. Grandiose, show yeah, off. We, we agree with each other on that point. <laughs> David Hepworth's book, Uncommon People, makes a surprising argument. The age of the rock star is over. It begins the late 1950s with Little Richard and then Elvis Presley. It incarnates a new form of stardom, young, rebellious and full of swagger, a wish-fulfilment role for a new kind of audience. Through consumer boom and political turmoil, from Elvis and the Beatles to Led Zeppelin to Michael Jackson and Nirvana, the rock star is at the centre of everything. Until suddenly, says David, it isn't. The age of the rock star, like the age of the cowboy, has passed, he writes. Like the cowboy, the idea of the rock star lives on in our imaginations. David's a fantastic read with a fantastic format. One chapter per year, one star per chapter, one moment. What was what, what made you think that the age of the rock star had passed? Was there a thing? I tell you, the thing was that I, I kept hearing every time I turned on a radio or read a newspaper, people were being referred to as rock stars who were not rock stars. I'm mm. talking about uh, politician rock stars, Obama, rock stars. Yeah. Right. Uh, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, probably the first rock, first rock star president. <laughs> uh, and you know, you, you could be you could be a film director, rock star. And it struck me that the idea of the rock star is a very, very powerful idea. It hangs around in our heads, yes. even though actual examples of it 
of that of that genus have kind of, have kind of passed, and pretty much like the cowboy, as I said with the cowboy, you know, the cow- cowboys stopped existing at the point that cowboys started being celebrated in Hollywood films. Mm. You know, they weren't there anymore, and uh, you know that was that was my view about rock stars that, that you couldn't you could no more behave, you could no longer behave in the way that a rock star traditionally behaved. You're not you're simply not allowed to anymore. <laughs> you know, because these people were. Absolutely large in the life, and they made music that was a reflection of their personality, and their personality was a reflection of their music, and it absolutely worked perfectly together. Now we live in far more careful times. We live in far more censorious times. You know, mm. one of the points is uh, I make in the book is that if you went round nowadays behaving in the way that Jimmy Page or David Bowie behaved in 1972. You'd be dragged before the court of public opinion. Possibly the court of and, the courts. Uh, yes. the court, absolutely. <laughs> and forced to apologise. Yeah. You know, now, what is the one characteristic of rock stars? They never apologise. Yes. They never apologise for anything. Everybody has to apologise for everything. So now, the, the, the only case of a, <laughs> a rock star apologising that I think of from the golden age is actually when John Lennon said... You know, the Beatles are more popular than Christ, you know, mm. which is a story that didn't get out until about a year after he'd said it. Mm. And then he had to apologise for it. Nowadays, we have a story like that every week. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's the world we live in, you know. So, you know, I think the rock star had, had their moment, you know, that, that tribe. And I think it was also, it was supplanted by hip-hop. And I think hip-hop stars come out of a different mould for a, for a start, Hip-hop stars are openly acquisitive, mm. openly materialistic, entirely in favour of it. Rock stars never were, oddly enough. They, they might pretend. have been in the choir. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, later on, I don't yeah. think that's why they got into it. They didn't go, in, go into it to get rich. They got into it to get girls and get famous and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and it might have been something they thought about when they were 35 years old. Whereas a rapper thinks about it when they're 19. Mm. You know, it's a very, very different archetype, you know. So what I wanted to do with the, with the book was just trace the idea of the, the kind of the various different strands that went up to make a rock star. Because if you ask, you know, the, an editor on the Today programme, what's a rock star? They'd say, oh, somebody looks like Keith Richard, you know, somebody wearing leather trousers <laughs> and got a cigarette dangling. Yeah. But, well, OK, that's one kind of a rock star. But Stevie Nicks is a rock star. Ian Dury was a rock star. It was all kinds of different people. It was, uh, it was an archetype that contained multitudes. Mm. And that's what I've tried to do in the book is track how those various different strands went up to build up that uh, the archetype. What are the interesting things? That, you mentioned it then, the, the kind of modest ambitions of the original ro- uh, rock stars. Ringo Starr said that after he left the Beatles, he might open a hairdresser. <laughs> no, he, actually said, he actually said a couple of hairdressers. Ambitious. Which I thought, uh, at least, no, it, 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 it uh, implied he'd been thinking about it. It was serious, because that was the extent of the ambition of an average top-level footballer mm. in those days. Yeah. What might I get out of this when it's all over? I'll run a pub or a sports yeah. shop or whatever. I'll go back to where I came from. I will be kind of unchanged by the experience, except I'll have mm. a few more quid. Well, there's Ringo Starr. How many years later, Sir Ringo Starr or whatever? It's yeah. absolutely extraordinary. I would like the idea of hair by Ringo. 
I can imagine. I can imagine my mum going to hair by Ringo. Well, also his wife, he married Maureen, who was a hairdresser. You see, that's why mm. he, he had his head screwed on. He did have his head screwed on. The um, you are, of course, a famous Ringo booster. Was it you that wrote? He wasn't just the best drummer in the Beatles. He was the best drummer for the Beatles. Well, absolutely, because it's, it's fashionable to slag off Ringo, isn't it? Unfairly. Well, maybe I don't know if it is anymore. Actually, mm. I think that uh, that ship sailed. Yeah, I think he was the perfect drummer for the Beatles. If you just go and listen to them before he joined. Pete Best is a very kind of wooden drummer. Yeah. Suddenly Ringo joins and they swing. And it's also Brian Epstein said, you know, it was only when Ringo joined that the picture was complete. And yeah. I think that's really true because all the Beatles contributed to the group, not just in terms of the music, but also in terms of the personality. Yeah. And, and you saw this when the Beatles went to America in 1964. Who was the big star? Ringo. Mm. Because they'd never seen anybody. They'd never heard anybody like Ringo before. They'd never met anybody like Ringo before. And here's another thing about rock stars that a a journalist wrote at the time about the Beatles when they arrived in America. He said, they seemed like a new kind of person. Mm. I think that's a really interesting point. Mm. You know, because rock stars introduce us to to kinds of people we've never met before. Stevie Nicks, Ian Dury, Mm. whoever... Kurt Cobain or whatever. You'd never met anybody like that. Yeah. And then, and the, this this was a platform to allow you to meet these people. My, I'm, I'm from Liverpool and my mother used to go and see the Beatles in the cavern and she and my auntie and all of her friends, none of them could understand why the Beatles got so huge around the world because obviously they knew dozens of lads like this. Absolutely. Like hundreds. <laughs> it's like, why? It's like a guy from the corner shop is suddenly yeah. the biggest person in the world. But of course... I now have American relatives, and they can explain that it was exactly like that. They were like them from another planet, and that planet was the was the future. It was a different kind of world. And also, I think they were they were classless at a time that people weren't. You know what I mean? They came from the provinces at a time when stars didn't. You know, in all sorts of ways. You yeah. know, and they were kind of they were matey. They were clever, but they weren't educated. You know, yeah. all these things worked for them absolutely perfectly. But I, I do think one of the things about the Beatles is you got when you look back, don't just listen to the music. It's the personality. Mm. Go and watch those press conferences. They were the Beatles 24 hours a day. Yeah. They gave you all the Beatles you could possibly want. They never ran away from the idea of the being the Beatles. They loved being the Beatles. Yeah. And that was the secret of their success. Now, I have to ask you then, if this is the age of the rock star that's now over, why did it end in 1995? Why are you drawing the line in 1995? Is it simply Kurt Cobain or are there other reasons? Kurt, Kurt Cobain, I think you start to also get the, uh, get the arrival of, of file sharing and all that kind of thing, which mm. I think moves things away, you know, because I think the rock star was, was uh, amongst the many roles that a rock star played, they were also kind of brands, you know. You yeah. had to believe in them because you were going to go and buy a record, largely having not heard it. You're going to trust in the idea of that record. You're going to take it home and persuade yourself in many cases that you liked it, even though you didn't. Mm. Once you move on to the days of... File sharing and all that kind of stuff. We can try absolutely everything all the time. So you don't need that level of commitment. But also, I do think Kurt Cobain is a kind of interesting end to my story because I think he's the person who felt weighed down by the accumulated heritage of being, I've got to be Elvis, I've got to be Bob Dylan, I've got to be John Lennon, I've got to be Johnny Rotten, mm. absolutely everything. And you can read his suicide now, it's full of that stuff. Yeah. He couldn't walk away from it, you know. And he felt he couldn't kind of deal with the contradictions of being a rock star because he still thought that he had his little punk group. 
Yeah. Even though they were the biggest, they were Michael yeah. Jackson big. And he couldn't handle being bigger than the Melvins, let alone. Absolutely. Yeah. He couldn't handle, you know, he walked down the road and, you know, people stopped him. Now, most rock stars find a way of dealing with that. Mm. The reason the Glimmer Twins, are, Mick and Keith are called the Glimmer Twins, is give them a glimmer. Just give them a little bit and then move on. The reason Paul McCartney walks through Soho and never stops is you've got to keep moving yeah. because he keeps superficial inter- interactions work perfectly. Kurt Cobain was the kind of person who felt he ought to stop yeah, and he ought to talk to them. Mm. And he always felt he disappointed them, yeah, which is kind of sad, really, because that's the truth. We are always faintly disappointed with these people, you know, <laughs> unless they, they really go the, the extra mile. You must have heard the famous story about Bruce Springsteen going home with a fan. Come on, then. So Bruce Springsteen's on tour in the 80s in the States. I think he's in Chicago. And he goes to take an afternoon off and he goes to the movies. And he's sitting there and down the row is a brother and sister. And they're looking down all through the film. And the lights go up. They look at him. And they realise it's Bruce Springsteen. And so they go up, you know, autograph or whatever, no selfies in those days. Mm. And uh, and they say, it's such a shame, Bruce. You know, our, our dad will never believe that we've met you. <laughs> he goes, where do you live? <laughs> it's not far away. So he goes home with them. Oh, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. But you can't do that all the time. Clearly, you can't. But if you do it once. You do it once. And I'm it talking about it now. Yeah, and it's... And, 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 I'm sure everybody now listening to this show will forever, for the rest of their lives, think Bruce Springsteen, good bloke. What a solid What system. a great guy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that's one of the characteristics of a rock star, uh, is that I always found that uh, people always think about rock stars. If I went for a drink with them, I'd really get on with them. Mm. They don't think that about movie stars. They don't think that about footballers. Mm. Yeah, They think rock stars are kind of like old bro- older brother figures. They're, they're friends who are slightly groovier than your friend. Well, David, if they've gone, where about what? Who's our slightly groovier friend now? If there's no rock stars left, because I would say a lot of people think people listening to this will say, "But hang on, Liam Gallagher, can you ask these people are rock stars?" Okay, well, I would say just one point about Liam Gallagher. Liam Gallagher's celebrity was established how long ago? Twenty plus twenty-five. There you go. Ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a long, long time so ago. So he's still in the he's still in the ball, but he's still in the window. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that's a long time yeah. ago, you know. And uh, can you? I think hip hop stars are. They've supplanted them in many ways. You know, we're, we're well into the era of hip-hop. We're probably getting near the end of the era of hip-hop, if you believe the theory that musical genres tend to have 40 years. That's about all they can sustain. <laughs> well, it's a fantastic read, Uncommon People, and uh, we would recommend it highly. Um, and we could talk about it all day, but we're not going to. We're going to move on uh, to The Greatest Five Seconds in Pop. Um, there are great albums, there are epic song suites, and there are songs that stay with you forever, but rock and pop are nothing without those single moments of magnificence that take you out of yourself. So as I said at the start of the show, we're going to ask our two guests to choose the single Five Greatest Seconds in Pop. Joel McIver, metal devotee and actual bass player, what is The Greatest Five Seconds in Pop for you? Well, funnily enough, it's the introduction to a song that I don't really enjoy. It's oh, just the intro that I'm going to nominate, and it's the uh, introduction of Beat It by Michael Jackson, mm. his huge, famous hit. Um, and it, uh, you, you get five or ten seconds of this amazing electronic, uh, very, very much not guitars or traditional instruments-generated sound, which to me is so doomy um, and so at odds with the often quite upbeat, uplifting sound of Jackson's music, that it's, it stands out on that record. I love it for some reason. It might be something to do with the, you know, the fact that I was a schoolboy heavy metal fan when I first heard it, you know, and, and it appealed in, 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 to that kind of slightly darker 
yeah. sensibility in me. That is not a cheery, happy sound. It's actually quite hard to, to describe in words. Yeah, uh, it's, it's like a bong. It sort of goes bong. Yeah. It sounds like bong. something bending slightly at the beginning of that. Uh, yeah, uh, there's some sort of pitch shifting going on. Well, I dug into this, and to my, to my amazement, according to Wikipedia, the intro is taken note for note from a demo LP called The Incredible Sounds of Synclavia 2, the synthesizer. <laughs> First published in 1981 by Denny Yeager Creative Services, makers of the Synclavia. So it's actually straight. This is Jacko. This is Quincy Jones and Jacko, the absolute Mount Olympus yeah. pinnacle of pop. Yeah. What about that? Stick that on. Yeah, go on. So they basically and sampled it, a demo. It doesn't make record. any sense with the context but, of the song or the album. But it does sound it incredible. It sounds amazing. It yes. does sound incredible. Really I was just does. reading about it recently, actually, that, that, that he wrote that because Quincy Jones said, I think you should have something on this record that's like My Sharona by the Knack. Wow. Okay. So that was a starting point. Yeah, a few opening chords, like, as it were. And yeah, it's yeah, the yeah, most yeah. calculated record of all time because <laughs> they set out that this is going to be the biggest selling record of all time. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. going through their minds. All He wasn't even going to put it out because Quincy Jones didn't think it would sell more than three million. No. So that's not enough. <laughs> wow. Now, that yeah. is a record that sounds good on high end speakers. It certainly does, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get me a maestro on it. David Hepworth, what's your choice for the greatest five seconds in pop? Well, I'm very glad you asked me this because I've got a prepared answer. Excellent. Because I, I previous book I wrote was about 1971 which is the kind of Annas Mirabilis of the rock album and when I, when I took this on the road and went talking at literary festivals and so forth I used to finish by saying uh, and I'm now going to tell you what the 10 greatest albums of 1971 are in order you might want to write this down <laughs> uh, and I'm going to finish with the greatest album of 1971 and furthermore, I'm going to play you the greatest bit of the greatest track on the greatest album of 1971. And that is one minute, six seconds into Barbara O'Reilly by The Who, mm. which is the opening track of Who's Next. And I wouldn't be surprised if the people listening to this today, you can just imagine what that sounds like, because it's still incredibly familiar. All those years since it was made, you know, it was it was used as as a theme tune on CSI, was it? Something? If listeners need their memory jogging, it's the bit after the lengthy synthesizer kind of paradiddles. It's, it's, it's and here's Roger. It's, it's Roger and the bass come simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Because it starts out with Pete Townsend's, fiddling on the Lowry organ through the synthesizer. Then you get the arrival of the extraordinary Nicky Hopkins on the piano. <laughs> then you get the arrival of Keith Moon yeah. on the drums. And you think, hang on. And then you get the arrival of Pete Townsend on the guitar. And you think, oh, hang on, we're where's, missing something. Where's Roger? And we get Roger <laughs> at the same time as the bass. Mm. And delayed bass syndrome mm. is a thing, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's unfortunate. We suffer from it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it, is a, it is quite a moment of self-annunciation, isn't it? And it's quite outrageous. It's extraordinary. It's got that line, you know, out here in the fields, I fight for my meals. <laughs> yeah. and, and everybody years later goes, what, Roger? You know, but that yeah. was all part of Pete Townsend's life house fantasy, you know, yeah. was the, the record that he was, that Glenn Johns told him he couldn't make. So no, he had no. to make Who's Next instead. I have a small anecdote about that song, which is that it was played at my wedding right. uh, in 2000, and none, no one was expecting it. There were a few of us who were fans of the song, but I noticed that uh, it drew people of the older and younger generations onto the floor uh, once the song had got started properly. I mean, personally, I love that intro so much, I wish it would just keep going, which is why I love it when it comes back in later in yeah. the song. Did they do the closing ceremony of the Olympics in London? They did, didn't they? they I'd be surprised if they didn't, actually. And they it, yeah. did, yeah. Barbara O'Reilly, because it means as much now as it did yeah. then, yeah. if well, not more. We'll stick it on that title playlist.
Now, what unites Metal by Pink Floyd, The Wonderful and Frightening World of the Fall, The Bends by Radiohead and Rodrigo e Gabriela? Well, there was a massive clue at the start of the show. It's John Leckie, the legendary English producer who graduated from tape operator Abbey Road, where he engineered solo work by John Lennon and George Harrison, through Punk and New Wave, where he produced XTC and Bill Nelson, through to the 80s, where his work on the Stone Roses debut album established him as the indisputed Mr. Indie Rock. Joel McIver interviews him in the new issue of Be There. Joel... Lecky is a fantastically low-key and personable fellow. What makes him the go-to guy for indie rock? Well, in as much as anyone's the go-to guy for anything, that was where he sort of landed up, having had a series of very successful records in that area. Um, I think um, if you look at the two records which he's best known for, which are, I think, Radiohead's The Bends and probably The Stone Roses' self-titled debut, um, technically... Uh, what he did was was allow as many instruments to, to record live from the floor as possible. Now, that makes sense in the case of the Stone Roses album, where there's this huge wash of sort of guitars and, and instrumentation, these big, broad atmospheres. You can imagine them all on the floor playing it live. It's not so much the case with the Radiohead record, because it's much tighter, it's more riff-based, mm. uh, the uh, arrangement's more economical. But nonetheless, what he did, and his genius, I think, was to let the the musicians do what they did best and just play from the floor. Uh, and so that's the technical aspect of it. In, in terms of his personality, he's one of those great producers, rather like Ken Scott, who we discussed in a previous podcast, who was content to sit back and let the creatives flourish and do what they knew how to do best. He was, he was the antithesis of one of those producers who stands there with a white coat and a clipboard and says, you must play here, you must play there, we must have this snare sound. Yeah. Um, and as you just said, he's a fantastically sort of relaxed, laid-back kind of guy. He also seems to be a bit of a mind reader. I, I sort of um, mm. read him saying somewhere uh, that you, you need to... The mark of a good tape-off is having the right place on the tape ready yeah. before people even yeah. ask for yeah. it. Mm. If you're following the conversation, you let a lot about power structure in the room. So he's actually a psychologist. Like A good producer is <laughs> both a psychologist and a therapist <laughs> and a mind reader. He's listening carefully. That's what he's doing. So, you know, you've got your average rock star in the room who says, dude, we need to go back to the end of bar three. And if you're a clever tape op, you will have seen that, that guy preparing to say that. And mm-hmm. you're right there at the start of the end of bar three. That's what he did. And people really appreciate that because it saves time. And because it saves time, it saves money. There's also a lot to be said for being a nice person to, to get on with. I mean, this is somebody who famously got on very well with the famously irascible Marky Smith. Mm. He did 48 songs with The Fall, which is actually more than most members of The Fall did <laughs> The Fall. I read him somewhere saying, the worst thing I ever did for The Fall was tell him to tune up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you that. mentioned those two records that made Lecky, the, the, the mm. Benz and the Stone Roses. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that radio had very alive to events in the music. It seems like a very zen thing. You know, there are events yeah. in the sound. They're a band in the true sense. They responded to each other. You know, mm. rather, you know, perhaps a little bit like the jazz tradition that you were talking about yeah. earlier. Um, and uh, what's interesting about that record is how, what a transition point it is. It's a great album in its own right. We all love it. It's in the, it's in the DNA now. Yeah. But if you look at the album that came before it, when they were this sort of fey, you know, relaxed indie band, and then they went on to become this complete progressive rock monster, yeah. um, uh, then, then you see how much of a, a transitional point and how important the Benz was. I mean, there isn't really a lecky sound, is there? I mean, he did you know, no, the indie really. totems like Elastica and the Lars, but he's also Barber Marlon, the Cowboy Junkies. Right. And Muse, don't forget, yeah. you know, in, in the 2000s, uh, who were at the time one of the more experimental rock bands, and he allowed them to do that and enabled it. Is he what you'd call an engineer producer? Yeah, right? he, that's where he learned his trade. Kind of where he's, and I think that's crucial, because if you know how to mic up an amp and get the right guitar tone, then you'll have a better understanding of the mentality behind the musician. And, you know, and yeah. bands are very often less threatened by engineer oh, yeah. producers. If you speak the same language. 
<laughs> they think this guy can do something that I can't do. Exactly. Yeah. And bands go into the studio, a lot of bands go into the studio with completely the wrong attitude. They either have no confidence or they have way too much arrogance. And what you need is someone who can be in the middle and coalesce all that stuff. Yeah. I've met him a couple of times. He's a, he's a lovely bloke. Yeah. But you would never, if you'd said to someone, what do you think this guy does for a living? Mm-hmm. Record producers would be very low down on the list. I mean, mm. people have a kind of, I think we mentioned earlier, people have a caricature idea of what a rock star looks like. People yeah. have a caricature idea of what a record producer looks like. And it tends to be a big hat and sunglasses banging the desk and saying, it needs more of you. <laughs> yeah. And Leckie very much isn't like that. He's kind of, he's the sort of dependable chap you can imagine in almost any unit. You know, you'd be perfectly happy to have him as your, as your lieutenant or your, uh, you know, in, in the army or, or yeah. you know, yeah. a good, great midfielder in a football team. Yeah, he's yeah. not a demonstrative dude. T- times have completely changed in that sense. I did a book with Glenn Hughes, who was the bass player in Deep Purple in the yeah. 70s. And he talked about a couple of producers who will remain nameless, who would indulge in the lifestyle, shall we say, that the band also yes, took yeah, part yeah. in. Uh, just as much as if they were the rock stars themselves. Now, that's all gone away. Do you have uh, a favourite Lecky record? Uh, yes, I'm going to nominate The Origin of Symmetry uh, by Muse, which came out in 2001. Much as I love the other the other albums, I think I've heard them rather too many times. Yeah. Um, but this is you've got to understand, Muse made this huge impact back then. Um, they were adopted by the goths of the world en masse. Um, uh, and that's a little bit of a flippant way of looking at it. But if you went to see one of their shows at the O2, which ended with a huge orchestral uh, a sort of outro, while the band completely left, leaving the crowd there, you know, in nonplussed. They had something. They had something very different. Yeah. Uh, and once again, Lecky enabled that very much. Yeah. Dave, do you have a favourite Lecky record? He did a load of stuff with Roy Harper. No, I, I like that Radiohead record. I'm not. I'm a huge believer in Stone, the Stone Roses. Stone Roses are a, a blind spot for me, mm. I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yes. <laughs> I've, I've never got what was the excitement about them. Uh, but, of course, he, he worked on All Things Must Pass by George did. Harrison, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Even if he only fetched the tea. <laughs> he yes. still has his yeah, name that's it. He should be carried around in a sedan chair no. for all eternity, yeah. for well, simply having done that. My favourite lucky record is Dukes of Stratosphere, XTC's oh, cool. Secret Identity, Sunspot uh, and Chips from the Chocolate Fireball, the compilation where XTC reinvented themselves as a psych band from mm. 1968. It's a little and it, bit of a wacky record, though. It's an really. amazing record. Um, <laughs> it sold twice as many as the preceding XTC record. They took on these secret identities, pretended to be people called uh, Sir John Johns and EIEI Owens, mm-hmm. and invented a complete past and put it out without telling anybody that it was XTC. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, back to the speakers, I ran these, I ran this quickly cheaply recorded record through the through the uh, Dali Rubicons mm. and my mind was duly blown so we're going to chuck a bit of uh, Dukes of Stratosphere as well as uh, Muse and a bit of all things must pass onto the playlist and that I'm afraid is the end of the show thanks to our guests David Hetworth and Joel McIver for coming in pleasure to have you um, you can read David and Joel in the new issue of Be There with Dali magazine get yours for free by going to facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers. If you enjoyed this edition, then you might like some of the other podcasts in this series. Just search Be There With Dali on your favourite podcast app or go to audioboom.com and search for Be There With Dali for a direct download. And we're on the Dali Facebook page too. Thanks for listening. Be There With Dali Loudspeakers was presented by Andrew Harrison and the studio producer was me, Jack Claremont. Be There is a Podmasters production. <laughs>